And now Pastor McWilliams will come to deliver the charge to our seniors. I was once your age, and it does not seem long ago. Life passes by so quickly. Well, you have, wow, notebooks open to take notes and Bibles. This is really good. (laughs) Well, uh, I love you all, and I thank the Lord for you, and... Wish you God's best. There's a great variety here of interests and abilities and perhaps callings for the future. But I want to take us to the pastoral epistles. And 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 is where we will begin. Second Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5. This is where we begin. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And we know that Timothy's father was a Greek and probably an unbeliever. But Timothy's mother and grandmother were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been privileged to have grown up in covenant homes and covenant households with parents and family members that know the Lord and love the Lord and around others in this church who have been family to you as well, who know the Lord and love the Lord. That's a great privilege indeed. The truth that indwells Timothy, that captivates his faith, that directs his life, is a faith that first indwelt his entire family, or his grandmother and his mother. And so I address you as covenant youth, that is to say, a part of the people of God in the sense that you have been brought up in Christian homes and have been part of a Christian church with glorious promises and wonderful ties that should be fostered yet still in your ongoing Christian living. But first, I want to ask you, do you personally know the Lord? Now, I ask that question not because I doubt that you know the Lord. I ask that question because only the Lord knows the heart. And because the few things that I'm going to say to you this evening from my heart to yours will only make sense to you if you know the Lord. Now, I believe that you do. Nonetheless, I ask that question. And as a matter of fact, I ask that question of all who are gathered here this evening. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Christ? Do you trust in him alone as Redeemer and Savior? But assuming your profession of faith and that you know the Lord... 
I want to bring a charge to you that is developed around four words. The first is authority. The second is affection. Authority, affection. The third is assurance. And the final one is aspiration. Now we're here in the pastoral epistles, and I want to begin with what the pastorals have to say, or at least 2 Timothy, about authority. And if you'll turn the page to chapter 3, verse 16, you'll see this very well-known passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now I say this because some of you are going to go on to all sorts of fields, and you're going to be with all sorts of people. You're going to be with scientists, and you're going to be with philosophers, and you're going to be with those who teach the liberal arts, and some of you are going to be sitting under professors in universities. And some of you will be sitting under unbelieving professors. And you can learn a lot, because they know many truths, but they do not know, that is, your unbelieving professor will not know truth. You understand the difference? They may know truths atomistically, here and there, but they do not understand the system of truth that is revealed in God's own word. And that's important for you to keep in mind. Your professor may know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and he might know higher math than that. He might be able to do all sorts of wonderful equations and teach you things that you do not know. But what he doesn't understand is that he must make a choice. Two plus two equals four, either because of the ultimacy of chance, or two plus two equals four because it reflects ultimate rationality in the mind of God. And you're liable to have teachers and professors and instructors who believe that two plus two equals four because of the ultimacy of chance. Or they may have some vague idea of some teleology, but it's not a biblical and Christian teleology. And so it will be one fallen head. I'm talking about the fall of Adam, our sinfulness. It will be one fallen head lecturing to other fallen heads, except perhaps maybe you alone in the classroom. Now, I went through this in my undergraduate work, I was the only Reformed student who believed in the verbal inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible in a school that was noted for teaching theology, and none of the professors believed any of the things that I believed. And I was surrounded by uh, atheists, and I was surrounded by uh, philosophical viewpoints that were contrary to the Word of God, and I had to learn very early on that there is this biblical teaching of antithesis. That is to say, there is the biblical view of viewing things, there is the unbelieving view of how the world works and operates, and there is a believing epistemology, you know the word epistemology, how we know what we know, there is a believing epistemology, and there is an unbelieving epistemology, and there is no common ground between them. 
And so do not be intimidated. That's what I want to say to you. It's also true that by the grace of God, I excelled in my major as a Christian studies major in a school where most of the professors were graduates of Yale Divinity School, Candler School of Theology, and other liberal institutions. But you will be taught evolution, the eradication of the distinction between the sexes. You will be forced into situations in which you will be taught moral insanity in a way that was not true for me where there was still some moral sanity despite the unbelief uh, that these men held. But do remember there are no brute facts. And by that we simply mean there are no uninterpreted facts. And one of the things to ask your professor is, what do you mean by that? Ask questions. Help them to see also that there are no uninterpreted facts that they are working out of a set of presuppositions just as you are working out of a set of presuppositions. The question is, whose presuppositions are correct? And so everyone approaches facts from the standpoint of either sinful, fallen presuppositions or biblical Christian presuppositions. Now, neither group is completely consistent. Would that we were completely consistent, and it should be your goal to be more and more consistent. But thank God when you have professors that are not fully consistent with their viewpoint. But nonetheless, in terms of antithesis, these are radically opposite. So either the facts are what they are because God says so, or life is meaningless. And the only way to be certain about anything is on the basis of God's revelation of himself in his word, the Bible. If you will stay here in this book and what you have been taught by your parents in your home, by your Sunday school teachers, many of you by your school teachers, your homeschool, and particularly by your pastors and their preaching, if you will stay here, your life will be, I mean all of your life, for all of your years, all of your days, your life will be on firm ground. But if you waver here on the authority of the Word of God, the authority of the Bible, if you depart from here, you will be at sea. And it's interesting that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul uses this image of seafaring for those who depart from the faith. He says in 1 Timothy, beginning at verse 18 of the first chapter, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare. You see, the Christian life is warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, one of the great tragedies is that sometimes there have been young people, sometimes, 
Most of the time, young people who have gone through this church have been in our families. They go on in life and they're faithful to the Lord. They stay by the book and they base their lives on it. They continue to learn the scriptures and to apply it to life. But on occasion, there is the tragedy of a young person who departs from the faith and makes shipwreck of his or her faith, makes shipwreck of his or her life. And so the call here includes a warning. Stay with God's word, base your life upon that word. This is the foundation of your life. Otherwise, there will be moral shipwreck and there will be the shipwreck of faith. So the authority that I'm calling upon you to believe and to stand upon by faith is the authority of the Bible, the authority of the Word of God. But also, subordinately, there is the authority of your godly parents and those who have taught you the truth. And in 2 Timothy, if you'll go back there, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the verses preceding the one about inspiration, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul says to Timothy, young Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, again, some professors make it their task to tell you that all that you have learned in your church, in your home, in your homeschooling, perhaps, in your Christian school, that it's all wrong. They make a project of helping young Christians make shipwreck of their faith. But you are covenant children. Hold to what you have been taught. And if you waver, there is usually an ethical reason. Let me put you on to that. If you begin, begin to wobble on the authority of God's word, then search your heart. Ask the Spirit of God to search your heart because there usually is an ethical, a moral reason. In other words, we are tempted to want to get rid of inconvenient truths so that we can sin. That's the fallen human heart. Even the regenerate heart, the believing heart, can be tempted to want to get rid of certain laws of God, certain truths, even certain promises, so that we can sin. And so here, yes, I'm calling you as Christians, professing Christians, to a biblical morality. But if you think that the morality to which I'm calling you is just stiff upper lip, go out there and on your own be moral, then you've understood nothing that your pastors have been preaching to you. The morality we're preaching to you is the morality of the cross. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses you from sin. It's the Spirit of God who indwells you that transforms and changes life. It's the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Spirit of God that helps you to love the law of God that once condemned you but now as your friend through Christ Jesus who has saved and redeemed you from your sin. We're calling you to the blood of Christ, to the morality of the cross. Do you understand what I'm saying? If not, just tell me because I want to be sure. Do you get it? The morality of the cross. 
But also, there's the authority of the church in our lives. And this is important, too, because we have known young people and others who have gone off, and all of a sudden, their pastors know nothing, their parents know nothing, and they can reject the authority of the Bible. They can minimize it or reject it. They can minimize or reject the uh, rightful authority of parents. They can even set aside the authority of the church in their lives. So when you go off, you're still members of this church. Whatever you do, whatever you choose to do, you're still members of this church, Christ church. So live that way. Make it your goal to never bring disrepute on the name of Christ, to never bring disrepute on the name of your family, and to never bring disrepute upon your church membership. And especially, I want to emphasize that the dissipated lifestyle of many youth when they go away from home, and I'm not expecting that of you, I'm expecting quite different from, differently from you, but nonetheless, you know that it happens. The dissipated lifestyle of many youth when they go away from home, well, they simply have no place for the authority of the church any longer in their lives. And they use body and soul in ways that contradict their profession of faith. And the scriptures teach us that the body is not meant for moral abuse. And Paul tells us that the body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So maybe you're thinking, Pastor, do you really think I'm capable of this? Well, yes, I do, because we all are capable of this, but by the grace of God. We really need to reckon with the depth of sin and what the fall means, but we also need to reckon with the wonder of regenerating grace that can change the heart. But we are all capable of any sin apart from the grace of God. And so you must understand that our culture wants Christians to defile their consciences. The culture in which you live wants you to defile your conscience. Yet I think you need to hear this warning. Follow the way of the world and it will let you down and it will let you down hard. Follow the Lord and it will be difficult, but you will have a clean conscience. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so, young ladies, what are you going to chase? You know, don't chase boys. Young man, don't chase girls. What are you going to chase? What are you going to pursue with heart and soul? Well, pursue holiness. Chase holiness. Chase the Lord with all of your being. And when your elders contact you, and elders, you're going to do that, right? When your elders contact you, be honest with them about your heart's needs and submit to their leadership in the truths of God's word. So authority. There's the authority of God's word. That's, there's the authority of, of parents. Even though you're becoming adults, you are adults. Nonetheless, the authority that has been invested in you by 
by the, the parental love and care needs to be regarded. You always need to remember the fifth commandment, no matter how old you are, honor thy father and thy mother. And there is the authority of the church. All right, the second word is affection, affection. And by affection, I'm talking about love for the Lord. I'm talking about affection for Christ. Make Christ chief in your affections because he is the altogether lovely one, as the Song of Solomon says. Cultivate communion with God. Cultivate a worshipful heart, daily time in God's word, daily time in prayer that you do not miss for anything. Uh, good Sunday worship habits, good daily habits of public and private worship. Remember what Christ has done for you. Never forget what it costs the Son of God to redeem you from your sins. And be in a mature church with mature Christians. If you're in Lakeland, be here. But be with others that will help you to develop affection for Christ. You'll have many friends. And it's a good thing if you're able to help an unbelieving friend. But the person that should be closest to your heart should be the Christian friend, the person with whom you unburden your soul, the person whom you share confidences, with whom you share intimacies, the person with whom you may seek wisdom from whom and from you. They should be Christians. So develop Christian friends. Have Christian friends, believing friends, and be sure that that helps to develop your affection for Christ. But if you're going to have affection for Christ, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He's the truth. You must have affection for the truth. And if there's anything I think that needs to be underscored among Christians today, it is love for truth as an objective body of revealed truth as it is found in the Word of God. Do you love the truth? Do you really love the truth? Loving the truth is necessary to knowing the truth. Because when we speak of knowing, I don't mean do you only know how to recite the catechism? Do you know these things intellectually? But have these truths become experientially a part of your life? Because if you do not love the truth, you will always be at sea. And never settled and open to destructive foolishness as it comes from the world. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. These familiar verses. Colossians 3, the first four verses. Here the Apostle Paul says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And verse 3 for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, is the hidden source of holy living. It's the hidden source of holiness of life. 
So we must form our minds that focus upon Christ and focus upon holy desires. And this requires, on the part of the Christian, real determination. It requires... It requires practice. (laughs) It requires energy. It requires effort. So that your minds, as we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, your minds are actually formed in a Christian way, molded in a Christian way. That means being careful of what I listen to, what I see, what I watch, what I read, what I hear. Being careful not to let down your guard when you have an unbiblical philosophy or viewpoint with which to deal. But here's another question for you. You would say, Pastor, of course I love the Lord, and of course I have affection for the Lord, and of course I love His truth. But few of you have gone through yet in your lives. All of you have had trouble. All of you have had problems. We do live in a fallen world, but few of you yet have gone through devastating things, truly devastating things. Job went through devastating things, didn't he? You remember? He lost all of his cattle, and then he lost all ten of his children. And how did he respond? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But that's not where he ended. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so the affection that I'm talking about in the heart is an affection that is so centered upon Christ that when really devastating, hard things come into your lives, and to varying degrees that will happen to all of you, you still will be able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I still love him. I know he has a purpose. I know his plan for me is perfect and that it even includes this devastating thing. Because what happens with a person who may have a profession of faith that is not possession is that that person goes through a devastating thing and then says, if God is going to allow this in my life, then I'm not going to love him anymore. That's the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever when the hard things come. So affection. You see, the mind cannot be empty. Our minds are meant to aspire. And so we need to aspire to those things that are pure and right and good. To focus upon Christ and holy desires and holiness of life. Let me give you another word. That word is assurance. Assurance. All right? Obedience is a support to your sense of assurance. Low degrees of obedience are not consistent with high degrees of assurance. Or maybe I should say high degrees of assurance are not consistent with low degrees of obedience. But you need assurance of faith in order to face what's coming in life. Assurance is needed for overcoming sin. Because we're wrapped up in ourselves and we're self-centered by nature. And guilt never fosters obedience, but quite the opposite. Obedience is fostered by knowing that your sins are forgiven and living out of the reality that your sins have been pardoned 
by the blood of Christ. Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian, said this, As long as we aren't certain and firm in our faith and still doubt, we will continue to experience anxiety and fear and will not have the boldness and trust of children of God. We will still be far too concerned with ourselves to be able to devote our attention to works of love toward God and our neighbor. The eye of the soul remains turned inward and does not have a broad, liberated vision of the world. We are still more and le- more or less subject to the spirit of fear. We still feel far from God and do not live out of fellowship with Him. Secretly, we still harbor the thoughts that we must please Him with our stature and virtues, and we still act out of legalistic principles. We remain servants, not children. But if you have assurance of faith, a growing, strong assurance of faith that your sins are pardoned through the blood of Christ, then you will be able to live as a child of God and not simply as a servant. To live boldly, you must live out of the assurance that your sins are forgiven. And we want you to live boldly for Christ. But then let me give you one other, one other word, and that word is aspiration. For what do you aspire? To what do you aspire? What are you focused on? Where do you want to go in life? Um, the only question here, as far as I'm concerned, whether you're a mathematician or whether you work in a medical office or no matter what you may be doing, The only question I have for you is, is it because of a passion for the glory of God? The only thing worth living for in this life is the glory of God. So if there's a marriage in your future, for example, make sure that you marry a believer only, and then not just any believer, but one that can help you grow in grace know the Lord, be deeply committed to, to the passion of the pursuit of holiness and the glory of God. There's one thing worth living for, young people. The only thing worth living for is the glory of God. So live for His glory. Rely on God's promise. I once preached a sermon to this congregation, actually, from Ephesians 1.10, And I concluded by saying, cosmic redemption calls for total commitment. And so, grow and struggle in life with the help of the Spirit of God to have a totally committed life to Jesus Christ. And I really long for these things for you. I know your pastors pray for these things for you. I know your parents are praying for this for you. that you will live for the glory of God. Now, one of my favorite people in church history, and I really commend to you learning especially about your Reformed fathers and mothers, is Guido de Bray. He was the author of the Belgic Confession of Faith, one of the great Reformation confessions. And if you've never read it, I commend it to you. And uh, Guido de Bray... um, When he married, he and his wife had four children. She knew that he probably would be martyred for the faith. 
and they were married seven years. He wrote various letters to her when he was imprisoned by Roman Catholic authorities because he preached the Reformed faith. And here's a portion of one that he wrote from prison. When I preached, spoke as a blind... Okay, here's what he says. Certainly, I must confess this, namely, that I, when I preached, spoke as a blind man about colors, if I compare it with what I now feel and experience. What he's saying is that when he's now in prison for the faith, when he's really suffering for, for the Lord, it adds, it adds beautiful, bright, brilliant color to his life. <laughs> Quite the opposite of what we might think. I have made progress and learned more in my imprisonment than in all my life. I find myself at a very good school. I have the Holy Ghost who continually inspires me and who instructs me to handle the weapons in conflict. On the other hand, Satan encircles me, the opponent of all the children of God who is as a roaring lion in order to devour me. But the one who has said to me, fear not, I have overcome the world, causes me to conquer He comforts and strengthens me in an unbelievable manner. I am more comfortable than the enemies of the gospel. I eat, drink, and sleep better than they do. I have been put in the strongest and gloomiest prison, which itself allows one to think I receive no air or light than through a small opening through which one throws the filth. I have rough and heavy chains on my hands and feet, which are a continual torment to me, But despite all this, my God does not forsake his promise and comforts my heart and gives me great contentment. Now, am I saying this because I think that you're going to be put in prison with chains? Probably not. It is happening to some Christians in the world, but you are going to face hard things. Look at how our fathers in the faith faced hard things. And then when he was was, um, sentenced to death, This invincible, glorious man of God, this hero of the faith, said this, I'm exceedingly gladdened. He said this to the people who sentenced him to death. He said, I'm exceedingly gladdened and had never supposed that God would give me such honor. I feel that my countenance changes and I am joyful on account of the grace that increases in me more and more. I am strengthened from moment to moment. The time of my departure is at hand. It seems to me that my spirit has wings to fly to heaven. There, today, I have been invited to the wedding feast of my Lord, the Son of God. And Philip Schaff, in his uh, great compilation of the confessions of the church, Schaff remarked that Debray met his death as if it were a marriage feast. And that's because it was. (laughs) It was. And so the challenge here is, no matter what comes, let the the dungeon, let the prison, let the hardship be bright with the countenance of Christ. Let it help you to become the Christian that he wants to be, because soon we'll be in eternity, and this time, this life will be a blip on the screen, and we will be with our Lord forever endeavor. Young people, young adults, young people, let's together have an eternal perspective. You are not too young to live with an eternal perspective. May the Lord bless you and work these truths in your lives and 
the lives of all of God's people here. Amen.